What's up guys, welcome back to Jen Avatalk. In today's episode, I will be talking about how money will work in the metaverse, alright? So, let's get into it. It is hard to know what anyone else really wants, and I think of this man often. I thought of him most recently while watching Mark Zuckerberg deliver an hour-long presentation on Facebook's rebrand. It's now called Meta. Well, you know who I think of? It's Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, his newfound focus on building the metaverse, a vast and integrated virtual world. Watching Zuckerberg go through a blandly money virtual set, appointed as if from a drop-down menu, with books and trinkets and unused-looking sports equipment. I wondered if there were people who wanted this or would find this vision exciting. Then I reminded myself. I think it is useful in attempts to forecast the future to be humble about the enormous mystery of other people's desires. In recent months, the metaverse has been described as a kind of online place combining virtual reality, augmented reality, the internet, entertainment experiences, gaming, and remote work. The key idea is that no matter what you're doing in the metaverse or where you are, your identities and assets will be multi-platform and transportable. You'll be the same you at work and at leisure. As the concept of metaverse has snaked into discourse, predictions about it have seemed mainly to reflect the size of the corporations that are setting the terms of the conversation. The term metaverse itself, which has its origins in dystopian science fiction, has been aggressively promoted by companies with worlds to sell. Reading about the metaverse, I've often had the uneasy feeling that I'm taking something far too seriously, giving credence to the wrong things, internalizing the wrong logic simply because a small number of world-historically wealthy people have told me too. What they're saying is incredible, not least because it is entirely speculative. This suggests that the metaverse will be a massively skilled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D individuals, virtual worlds, which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users. They offer that it might enable companies to embed computing into the real world and to embed the real world into computing, and that it could make the virtual world some more real and the real world more rich with virtual experiences. Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic Games, has said that the metaverse may be a multi-trillion dollar part of the world economy. Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA, thinks that it could create a new economy that is larger than a current economy. The overall point is that it will be simultaneously a place for connection, community, and so on, and also a form of transaction and extraction. For its makers, the metaverse will be stuffed with money in every dimension all the way down. If the metaverse materializes, it will probably look and behave like a video game, at least for a little while. For millions of people, video games already serve as everyday immersive virtual experiences. Gaming companies provide infrastructures for Hollywood films, spatial visualizations, and live performances. Aesthetically, the metaverse could have the ghostly realism of 2019's The Lion King, the anesthetized cheerfulness of The Sims, the pixel art graphics of a 16-bit era, or any other vibe. Physically, it will probably be accessed to headgear, rear headsets, air glasses, or simply a computer screen. Financially, it could look something like Firmbro. It was placed spent millions of dollars on virtual windmills, fertilizers, farm animals, and water, tending to what Alinda Y. Shan, 
and Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara has called an ecologically absurd landscape in which dying crops would be revived by underwater spray and sheep-produced wool sweaters affect eating after eating tomatoes. The gaming industry's business models tend to evolve on a huge of technological development. In the early 2000s, premium games were sold as standalone products, like blockbuster films, the hero of large marketing budgets, vivid advertising campaigns, and hardly anticipated release dates. Around the which the bulk of revenue was collected, but as personal computers grew faster and more powerful, and the internet became more reliable and ubiquitous, the model began to shift. Some games were no longer stored on disks or cartridges, but in the cloud. Often people accessed them not on gaming consoles, but through their smartphones. Massively, multiplayer online games such as World of Warcraft brought small-scale in-app purchases known as microtransactions into the mainstream. Microtransactions were most common in free-to-play games. These cost nothing to download, but grew increasingly complex and crucially more fun with every additional expenditure. Now, game companies would charge for new levels, new features, new things to buy, push directly to users' devices. Alexander Vega and Alice Gecker, researchers, researchers in Amsterdam, have described this transition as the cessation of top-tier video games, a shift toward what Stefan Stadowski has called the rental capitalism, the future of the industry, Bernard Vega and Gecker write, which will be one of fully estetized gaming, in which gamers will own neither the games nor the consoles, but pay for seasonal battle passes or owe subscription fees like Fortnite. At the same time, the logic of ownership will live on inside the game themselves, in the form of customizable skins for avatars, character attire weapons, tools, and so on, acquired through microtransactions, kind of like Roblox. This is what makes the modern blockbuster game a highly productive asset. By combining the rent-based and commodity-based models, the games are able to continually draw income. As in-game economies grew, they generated robust black markets for virtual items, which placed buyers selling everyday from ordinary game elements, armor, weapons, gold, to the equivalent of collectibles, a limited edition party hat. Because players were accustomed to spending real money on virtual goods, or in some cases real money on digital currency, which could be spent on virtual goods, these black markets could be lucrative. Real money trading, or RMT, began with one-to-one exchange on sites like eBay, but was quickly scaled up and professionalized. Some players, usually in places with limited economic opportunity, took up gaming full-time in order to rack up in-game loot, treasure, and bonuses, selling those assets for profit outside the game to other players, a practice known as gold farming. In 2004, the president of Internet Gaming Entertainment, a virtual asset trading startup, established in 2001 that relied on labor of low-wage players, estimated that the market for virtual goods and services was about $880 million a year. By 2009, as many as a million farmers worked in China, many of them in tightly packed, open-plan computer labs under conditions that were often compared in the media to sweatshops. In 2011, The Guardian reported that prisoners at a Chinese labor camp were being made to play online multiplayer games to build up credits that prison guard would then trade for real money. Reading about people who played games for profit reminded me of Games of Empire, Global Capitalism and Video Games, 
a seminal work in video game studies published in 2009 by Nick Dyer Wilford and Greg Depertour. Academists working in media studies. The authors argue that video games are the paradigmatic media of empire, a totalizing regime of planetary militarized hypercapitalism. Massively multiplayer online role-playing games fell out of fashion in the early 2010s. eBay banned the sale of virtual goods, pushing it to smaller, more ephemeral websites and marketplaces. Game developers, sometimes under regulatory pressure, tried to crack down on off-platform sales, which were almost always against their end-user license agreements, in terms of services anyway. But in recent year, real money trading has seen a minor resurgence. Old-school RuneScape and Tibia online multiplayer games set in fantasy world have attracted players from Venezuela who have found that their in-game currencies are more valuable and stable than the Bolivar. The games are popular in part because of their retro graphics, which can run well on older computers with low internet connections. In 2019, when Venezuela was hit with widespread power outages, there was an immediate economic crisis in old-school RuneScape. Above-board video games marketplace, meanwhile, have become more abundant and varied. These days, people spend more than $80 billion a year on virtual goods sold in video games. Game studies scholars have long argued that gaming allowed players to experiment with new identities and the modes of being. Virtual games simulate identities as citizen soldiers, free agent workers, cyborg adventurers, and corporate criminals, dire Wilford, and the period of right. Virtual play trains flexible personalities for flexible jobs, shapes subjects for militarized markets, and makes becoming a neoliberal subject fun. Virtual worlds, it seems, also train players to be eager, expectant, and constant consumers. Games reflect their clarity to societies and circumstances. From real, English players' obsessively mashed capricious fruit films was launched in 2009 and sat two sequels. In 2011, Farmville players spent an estimated $100 million on virtual goods. The writer Cory Doctorow later characterized it as an unregulated low-yield casino game. In retrospect, the game looks like an artifact of Silicon Valley's post-recession startup scene, which flourished during a transitional, confusing time when smartphones weren't yet ubiquitous and uneasy borders still held between online and offline life. The game was played on Facebook and revolved around virtual crops that died without constant attention. It relied on the defining features of its technological moment, social media networks, data collection, re-engagement hacks, user-generated content, and native advertising. From real success, the artist and designer A.J. Patrick Liskeris has written, depend on its adoption of social media logic. It entangled users in the web of social obligations. The metaverse, if it takes off, will reflect its cultural and technological movement moment too. Taking cues from today's tech ecosystem will probably be privatized, centralized, and financialized with rampant artificial scarcity. Players of farm role will not were not digital natives, players of games like Fortnite and Minecraft almost certainly are. And in a metaverse will be the target audience for companies selling digital skins, virtual trinkets, and cloud-based space. Some vocal proponents of Web3 has an yet unrealized idea for the internet's next phase based on visions for a decentralized blockchain-based digital substrate. Have fixed their gaze on the metaverse, seeing it as an opportunity for apical transformation. Arguments in favor of Web3 are frequently made using utopian rhetoric, democratization, decentralization, transformation, 
freedom, revolution, and so on. The elevate or obscurest what would otherwise be a financial conversation. We don't know. We don't yet know if cryptocurrency and the blockchain will have anything to do with what Microsoft, Meta, Roblox, or Tencent are building. Although the torrent of venture capital flowing into cryptocurrency-related companies is notable, but the future importance of money in the metaverse seems indisputable. Meta life will probably involve a reimagination of financial life and possibly a shift in our existing social hierarchies and institutions. Many of today's dominant visions of the future of money are unlinked from the political and territorial structures of nationhood. The media scholar Linus Words writes in her book *New Money: How Payment Became Social Media*, published in 2020. All of these visions are, on some level, post-democracy fantasies. A new crop of video games categorized as play-to-earn might give us a sense of where the metaverse is headed. Players of such games are often rewarded with native cryptocurrency. That is, with the game's version of Bitcoin or Ethereum, unlike Farm Bros, Farm Bucks, or RuneScape's gold pieces, which were in-game only. These new cryptocurrencies can be traded off-platform for other cryptocurrencies or government-issued money. Currently, the most prominent play-to-earn game is Axie Infinity, which is frequently compared to the game Pokemon. Characters in Axie Infinity called Axies are NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which served as certificates of ownership. For stone-looking cartoon assets, by winning battles with their axes or selling them to others, players rack up tokens of smooth love potion and governance tokens called Axie Infinity shards. Today, on cryptocurrency exchanges, a single SLP token is valued at about three cents, and an AXS token is worth about ninety-three dollars. During the pandemic, people in the Philippines have taken. To play Axie Infinity professionally, finding it more lucrative than local employment. We believe in a future where work and play become one. The game's FAQ states, "We believe in empowering our player and giving them economic opportunities." Recently, on a podcast produced by a venture capital firm, Adrian Horowitz, Jeff Sterling, and co-founder of Sky Mavis, the Vietnamese gaming company that makes Axie Infinity. Use the same extravagant rhetoric to describe the game's appeal. World of build is not just the gaming community, he said. It is, in many ways, a nation where people have shared cultural values. In this nation, it seemed any distinctions between culture and finance had collapsed. Some critics note the sense in which Axie Infinity's revenue model is like a Ponzi scheme. To start, players are required to purchase three Axie NFTs, which can cost anywhere from a hundred to a thousand dollars. This props up to the value of current players' assets. If new players stop signing up, the internal co- economy may sputter and crash. Even so, any cash flow problems might be mitigated for a time by venture funding. Sky Mavis recently raised more than $150 million in venture capital at a $3 billion valuation. The funding round was led by Addison Horowitz, which was an early investor in Singa, the creator of FarmVro. Even when the game changes, certain strategies and players stay the same. Gaming is going to be a key way in which the next hundreds of millions of users onboard into crypto. Ariana Simpson, an interesting Horowitz partner, noted on the podcast. So listening, I wondered, could I make this my life? Banking, dashboards, cryptocurrency wallets, ledgers, and spreadsheets. I tried to imagine myself in a corporate-owned and venture-funded metaverse, a virtual axolotl in a virtual sweater. Writing for a virtual magazine in a virtual office, fundraising virtual money. I might commit the Gen Z copy editor's avatar and hope the readers would invest in NFTs in my work. 
I could be paid in candy coin. We should cut of going to Meta or Minecraft or Microsoft, whatever corporation or game was my virtual landlord. Weekends would be spent at the arcade, at the casino. Uh, I would go on virtual vacations to virtual worlds, stay with virtual hosts to play virtual games and on virtual forums. I would play to earn and earn and earn. I could have everything I wanted and nothing at all. It's the end of my episode and I hope you guys had a great listen. If you did, hit the like, subscribe and share button. If you know something more about money and metaverse after listening to this episode. I hope it helped and I hope to say thank you and goodbye.